The Guardian. Guardian Podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details. Hello, I'm Hugh Muir. This is Media Talk. Coming up on today's programme, not the beginning of the end, this is the end. And so we're off. And I just wanted to let you know. A couple of more months of us, and then it's someone else's turn to have a go. Chris Moyles leaves the Radio 1 breakfast show. Ben Cooper wants him to stay on Radio 1. But will his ego fit inside a smaller show? And what of his heir, Nick Grimmy Grimshaw? Can he keep the audiences high while dragging down their average age? Also this week, more journalists are arrested in the phone hacking investigation. And we tackle the tricky business of reporting the naughty language at the heart of the John Terry trial. Bleepers at the ready, fingers steady, let's play Media Talk from The Guardian. And with me this week is The Guardian's Head of Media and Technology, Dan Sabber, and Broadcasting Consultant and former Managing Director of Radio One, Paul Robinson. Paul, um, plaudits to uh, Chris Moore from many quarters, including on our SIF site from Mike Reed. Do you think this was his decision or was he pushed? I think it was a combination of both, but ultimately he was pushed. I mean, he's got a two and a half year contract of only a year gone, so he could have been on another 18 months. But um, with Ben Cooper being appointed, it was quite obvious that the things that Andy Parfit maybe didn't want to do, Ben was going to do. I mean, Andy said to me uh, before he left, you know what, I've run this station for a number of years. I can't kill my children yet again. (laughs) And and the thing about a radio station like Radio 1 is it naturally gets old. And every few years, you've got to actually cull it and bring in some new young talent. And Andy didn't had the appetite to do it. Ben was clearly appointed and his brief was to actually bring the average age down and this is part of that. The first step being moving Greg James on to drive time. Yeah. So he's got drive time bolted down with a young guy, uh, keeping Scott Mills so the audience don't sort of get too scared too quickly. And now breakfast moving to be grimy. You know, that's the next part of the strategy of getting that age down. In terms of the choreography, it's been done quite well, hasn't it? Because we've seen blood on other occasions when they've tried to move presenters round or to get them out at Radio 1. One thinks of the uh, DLT there are I things was, I was managing editor when DLT <laughs> resigned and I, I had a phone call from a journalist and I was mowing my lawn and I hadn't even been listening. And, Have you heard DLT's resigned? I said, well, I'll get right back to you on that one. Uh, yeah, it has been dramatic in the past and Chris Evans and all sorts of, you know, all sorts of drama in the past. This one's been very well managed. Chris is actually a radio geek. He's a fan. He loved doing this show and it would have been, you know, sad for him to go, but he knew he had to go at some yeah, point. Yeah. And 80 years is the longest anyone's ever done the show and he's, he's done superbly well. Great ratings, but the reality is, you know, 38 years old, if you're trying to target teenagers and young 20s, Chris Moyles isn't your man anymore. In a way, it does defy logic, though. Because if you have something, you have someone who's that good, and you have figures that are that good, to end it is um, a bit bizarre, isn't it? Well, I think what's interesting about this is I think we're going to see a change in figures. I think we're going to see Radio 1 losing audience reach now. Because, you know, Moyle's show is probably quite different to that which Grimmy's going to actually put on. You know, Moyle's didn't play many records, remember. I mean, four records now was quite normal. He used to talk a lot. Uh, Grimshaw is really into the music. Yeah. You know, he's um, a guy who's into fashion. He's a guy who connects with all the showbiz people. He's at all the parties. He is really genuinely into the music, probably more than Moyle's was. So I think the show's going to become more of a music show. 
I suspect that 25 plus is, you know, 30 year olds are not going to like Grimmy in the way they like Moyles and they're going to probably go somewhere else. And the big question is where? I mean, if they go to Radio 2, that would be embarrassing because that would bring Radio 2's audience younger again. And they've already, you know, got a problem that Radio 2 is probably too young. If commercial radio is clever, it should benefit from this with stations like Capital, you mm, know, the new mm. pseudo network Capital, Kiss and, and maybe Absolute picking up audience from, uh, you know, disaffected Moyles fans. Could he go there though? Because the, the translation never quite works and they go from the BBC to the commercial sector. Moyles was at Radio Air and Capital, of course. That's where he cut his teeth. But I mean, I suspect that the formats now are so prescribed in commercial radio it's hard to see how Moyles would fit in interesting Johnny Vaughan has just announced he's going to absolute I can't see where Moyles is going to go I think that's one of the interesting issues here we know he's going to do um, Jesus Christ Superstar for what probably three or six months as Herod it may even become a tour but it's not a long-term job is he Radio 2 doesn't seem obvious to me you know maybe Radio 5 live possibly but it's not clear where he's going to slot in I don't think he's a commercial radio guy either now, let's talk about Grimmy. He presents evenings for the station, but he's currently sitting in for Greg James. For those who don't tend to go to bed listening to Radio on, what's he like? Grimmy is um, young. He really understands young people. Remember, Grimmy's been at Radio 1 quite a long time. He joined in 2005. He came in for BBC Switch when they put Switch on immediately after the chart show on Sunday night right. alongside Annie Mack. And his brief was to bring in teenagers into Radio 1. So he's been there a while. So it's not like he's sort of unfamiliar. In that sense, it's a safe decision by Ben Cooper because he's known to the audience. He knows his way around Radio 1. He, you know, he knows what public service radio needs to be. He's not that good a presenter, if I'm honest. He's not a DJ's DJ. He's a little bit rough around the edges. And I think he's not done a daytime show before, apart mm-hmm. from filling in. So, you know, going on to the breakfast show, he's going to have to learn some radio technique and presentation technique. You know, he's a good TV presenter too, and he's right, on yeah, T4. Yeah. But he's not an um, you know, experienced hand uh, in terms of being a DJ who's done his training in the way Moyles had. You know, he's someone who's more of a generic broadcast who's also doing radio. And he's going to have to learn the discipline of doing, you know, five days a week, three and a half hours a day. It's a tough haul, that, to get that right and get mm. that good every morning. And Dan Sabat, don't you slink away because I put it to you that uh, Greg James should have got this job according to the pundits. Did the pundits get it wrong? The pundits did get it wrong. The thing I was going to just say was that the the noise coming out of Radio 1 on the day was you know, we knew Chris Moyles had to go. That was inevitable. But but Nick Grimshaw's time was now. We had to get him now. Now I don't know whether that kind of meant they were worried that they were going to lose him to TV or perhaps he'd had a sort of uh, an offer or a hint of an offer somewhere else but I think you know as you touched on new station boss Ben Cooper he's got to make his mark this is his you know the big decision that he knew he had to take quite quickly we all knew he had to take but he thought that you know Nick Grimshaw was the sort of hot property of the moment and I think that's quite that's quite interesting and I think you touched on the other reasons why I think there's the celebrity factor uh, you look at the people he's dated and his friends he's going to be in the papers a lot he's going to help promote you know he's going to help promote the station and I think you've got to have an off-air profile if you're going to you're going to establish yourself in you know in this critically important job it's critically important across the BBC in a way because it is sort of the the, the lead program if you like aimed at you know, day one set young people sounds terribly patronising. No, no, like right, right. I think you're totally right, Dan. And look That's at it. look at what's happened at Capital. I mean, Dave Berry at Capital in London. Sorry to make a London point, but Dave Berry is you know exactly that. He's young, he's trendy, he's good looking, he's into the music. It makes Chris Moyles on Radio One look a bit old fashioned. So I think in that sense, Radio One's gone the same route as Dave Berry on Capital, who to date anyway appears to be doing good business for.
for them. Dan, if you look at the stations across the, the board, have they got the strategy right? Because uh, Paul was saying that you know, they're moving miles on, but he doesn't naturally fit on Radio 2. Normally that's the transition people talk about, that maybe he'll go to Radio 2. And, and, and we're not sure that Radio 2 has its audience demographic right either. Is the strategy all a bit awry? Uh, well, I think it does take a while to jump from Radio 1 to Radio 2, but, you know, Chris Evans got there. So I don't think it's always a smooth journey, but it doesn't mean it can't be done. That said, I've always been slightly sort of wary of, you know, the, the, the sort of very age-focused strategy that the BBC uh, has got into and for me you know I would rather we sort of had a world where we had a sort of contemporary sort of a contemporary music station i.e. Radio 1 and a let's call it a classic music station not classical but just sort of or gold music mm. station or, or some such as in Radio 2 and then we were less worried about age and demographic but this is I think and I've got in trouble with Bob Shannon for saying this because I you know however old I am uh, and I'm definitely not on the Radio 1 demographic graphic technically and they don't want me listening to it I much prefer Radio 1 to Radio 2 which I still feel is for the hairdresser and and for people in their 60s or 70s and I just the brand of Radio 2 just puts me off and I would rather we had a slightly different approach but anyway it's not the world that we're in but I'd rather be in that world I'm sure commercial radio would have a different view but I'd rather we were in that world of having something very clearly contemporary and something very clearly not quite so contemporary they played I don't know Rolling Stones songs and that was the positioning we worried less about age in that mix. Now short of piping his output into various playgroups what else can Ben Cooper do to get the average age down? Well one thing is to look at the music he plays and I, I hear what Dan says but the thing about music is music does tend to segment by age because you tend to have times in your life when music is important and that's the stuff that tends to stay with you and it, it's, you know, it does tend to work that it segments by age but um, what Radio 1 could do is look at the policy and probably move more towards uh, newer distinctive music they're still playing probably too many records that you also hear on commercial radio uh, too many pop hits and if they were to play more new bands more new music and less oldies that would also help to get the audience younger and then the other thing is to look at the weekends and I think that there's you know changes they could make there there's other presenters who've been around a long time I suspect that um, whilst this is the big news putting in a new breakfast host uh, Ben hasn't stopped yet and there'll be more changes to come you know Scott Mills will be there for a bit in the afternoons Fern Cotton's fine for the moment but I think weekends he'll look at those and there'll be other new hopefully new fresh talent coming in as well Dan this is a brutal old business isn't it yeah but it, I, to a degree it does have to be done Radio 1 does have to sort of cannibalize eat itself periodically I think it was going to sort of stay fresh and relevant otherwise I think Mike Reed would still be uh, would still be there and would all and be, what's wrong with that I, no because it, it, I think it's got to be a contemporary music station his jingle wouldn't yeah. work it was 275 285 Mike Reed Mike Reed this doesn't no, work it wouldn't anymore no, okay. they, 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 it was of its time there you go there's a man who knows it. <laughs> everything you need to know look it's got to it's got to be a contemporary music station uh, you know uh, uh, what else is, you know what else is there for it's got to play a lot of British music uh, and it's got to help support the music industry in its way and it's it's got to be lively and entertaining and fun because the BBC's got to reach everybody, young, you know, young or old, uh, in the, whether they live in the north or the south. So that's what Radio One's got to do. And I think if that means changing the personnel, uh, so be it. Uh, uh, it's the way in entertainment. OK, let's have a look at some of the other stories this week. Dan, more arrests as part of Operation Elverdon. Are we the only two working hacks who haven't been arrested? Uh, no, I think there are several others. 
<laughs> I, I feel bad about it. No, there are plenty of honest hacks in this business, uh, uh, and I think, um, and plenty of debate about the arrest too. But what's really interesting here is uh, journalists arrested are from the Sunday Mirror and the Daily Star on Sunday. So it's spreading. Uh, it's spreading, and it's not News International. And let me say one more time, it's not News International. Uh, Elvedon's all about um, alleged corrupt payments to public officials, so uh, uh, payments to prison officers, policemen. You know these kind of these kind of folks for stories. I think some journalists or people who've been around a long time felt this is, you know, standard practice and sort of fair enough. You know, you're just paying a, a you know a source a tip fee. Yes. And some officials thought that too. Obviously. Well, I think well they clearly did, and they've been arrested too. Uh, 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 uh. So I think really what, what's really not clear in all this whole all this saga is how serious are the allegations, how much money is involved, how frequent, what kind of information was sought, and I, I don't think we're going to find that out until you know we get around to the. Prosecution service charging people or not? I mean, my opening question was slightly facetious, but only slightly because I'm wondering what must it be like in those newsrooms where people are being arrested all the time? Um, what must it be like working in those newsrooms for people who think, well, am I going to get the, no- the, the tap on the shoulder next? Well, what's interesting is that this is the probe that's really sort of, if you like, sort of widened out and covering other newspapers, and the arrests are ongoing. I mean, phone hacking, we've talked a lot about phone hacking, but, you know, Keir Starmer, the DPP, was telling. Uh, telling the Guardian on Monday that uh, uh, he's going to decide this month who, who what phone hacking charges he's going to bring. And I think that will represent the conclusion of the investigatory phase, if you like, that they'll decide... I think there are 12 files on his desk, and he'll decide what to do in, 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 in those cases. And then, to a degree, well, we don't move on from phone hacking, but we're moving to a resolution, albeit one that will take a year or two before the trials come. Uh, with this corrupt payments investigation, we're just seeing more and more people arrested. Um, seemingly no files passed to the CPS, so we're a long way from a charging phase. And I think um, we've got more to learn. Now, it's been promised that um, Sue Akers, who's the Detective Assistant Commissioner at the Met, who's leading these investigations, uh, uh, phone hacking, that's Wheating and Elvedon Corrupt Payments, is going to come back, I think, next week to, to, to Leveson, and possibly again in the autumn, although she's on the verge of retirement, to update further. So I think we'll get more of a sense of where we are. Dan, you mentioned Leveson there. Um, they think it's all over. I think we all thought it was all over because it's gone quiet. But uh, Lord Hunt and Lord Black were, were up there this week. What, they, what were they saying? I think ne- next week will be the last week of um, uh, of witness statements or, 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 or people giving evidence live in person. So it's possible we'll be able to have a Media Talk podcast without discussing Leveson some point this no. year. Not quite yet, though. <laughs> there Not are People yet. are having sweepstakes on this in their various offices as to when that would be. I think, look, Black and Hunt is quite interesting because what we're now having is a sort of a short round of hearings about the solution uh, the, the judge is sort of he's got his report in mind he's got to produce it in the autumn and he's canvassing ideas clearly what the uh, lord hunt the outgoing uh, chairman of the pcc uh, or, or rather the chairman of the outgoing pcc uh, was before him guy black really telegraph executive former spin doctor to michael howard representing the newspaper industry we're, we're trying to do was present their kind of their plan and the real point of difference is becoming quite clear they're trying to really avoid any legislation, let's call it a Leveson law. Mm. Uh, uh, they fear, they argue that the moment you put anything uh, before Parliament, any sort of bill before Parliament, even if it's just to sort of recognise a, regu- a regulator in theory, the MPs will hit you with all kinds of amendments and suddenly we'll be in a mess. And that's a very strongly held view at some titles, at the Telegraph, the Mail, I think News International as well. However, it's not a view universally shared and it doesn't appear to be a view shared by the judge, although the judge is very careful to stay his hand. And norm- normally he intervenes and says, this is good, this is not. 
kept out of it this time. And so what they did was they sort of, they've got this great complex model around contracts that publishers sign up into these long five-year contracts to the PCC and in return this toughened up PCC could hit them overhead with fines and so forth for breach of contract. Mm. It's a nice model. I'm not sure it's going to be enough to convince the judge, and there's a lot more debating to come as to whether you know, we will need a Leveson law or not, or whether there should be one. But that's the battle line we saw this week. And do you know in your own mind, or looking at the judge, is he being poker-faced about it, or do you have a sense that you know where he's going to go? I think he's more inclined to propose uh, uh, legislation, but the judge has got other things in mind, and he's got uh, two other things he's hinted at. One of them is some kind of constitutional guarantee for the freedom of the press, along the lines of the 2005 Constitutional Reform Act. It talks about the judiciary in the same way. It gives them enshrines, if you like, in law, the freedom of the judiciary. So that's something I think he wants to offer. It's not quite a British First Amendment, but it doesn't sound unattractive to me and the other thing that you want to look at is setting up a kind of low-cost um, libel and privacy tribunal kind of like an employment tribunal for for, for ryan Giggs uh, or, or, or anyone wanting to bring a libel action it's really aimed at the next um god forbid the next sort of mccann family or the christopher jeffries yeah, yeah. or the dowlers the next set of ordinary people caught up in the media storm who have a genuine reason for redress so that's what all that's about both good ideas both need legislation why not then bring in other sort of, you know, why not look further at legislation? And that's where I think the judge is going, or at least that's, that's the package that's in the judge's mind. OK, this is a media talk from The Guardian. It's been a busy week uh, for the BBC uh, and a historic week in many ways. Uh, they moved out on Thursday from the Bush House, the last World Service broadcast from Bush House. Paul, are these things important there? I think they are a bit. I, I um, walked through New Broadcasting House reception last week and I sort of looked up at what used to be Egton House, which is now part of um, you know, Broadcasting House, which is where Radio 1 used to be. And of course, Radio 1 was sort of physically, you know, geographically and mentally separate from the BBC you know, 20 years ago. Um, I think it does matter. Um, I don't think that um, the DG has spent much time in Bush House, has he? So uh, they've obviously felt they've had you know, their own area and they've always, they've always been self-contained. I mean, I know they're funded now in the same way by the licence fee, but the fact they had... Um, Foreign Commonwealth Office funding. They were located somewhere different, different mindset. You know, they, they did have a different sort of DNA. I don't think it's going to change the service, but how people feel about it and the sense of ownership and, you know, the pride of working in the World Service, I think it has changed, yes. Dan, Mark Thompson was the last voice to be heard on the World Service. Uh, I think some of the people there were a bit disgruntled about that, that uh, he wasn't seen there very often, as Paul just said, and turned up. And uh, I think the last words were Mark Thompson, Bush House. Is that typical? I think that's the perk of being Director General and an outgoing Director General, I think, on on his last lap. People, I think, would inevitably grumble about that sort of thing when the, when the boss comes along. I had only one experience of Bush House. I mean, it looks nice enough from the outside, which is we had to sort of, Radio 4 had to decamp there, or some shows had to decamp there briefly And the, uh, in the last couple of years. And the equipment was awful, and the engineers <laughs> were terribly stressed. And, 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 and when you go to the new facility that they've got, this, you know, spanking new spick and span newsroom, you know, just on Portland Place, these are, you know... It looks wonderful. I hope it's wonderful to use. Uh, it's a much better environment in theory. And, and journalists, you know, the journalists should be altogether mingling because journalists work better in, in packs because, frankly, we get ideas from each other. So this is a good thing. This is a good thing. If they're mingling yeah. with the domestic journalists, though, is it the same thing? I mean, there's a worry there that we're just, they're just all being fed into the sausage machine. Right? I, look, I think there is one worry, which is, of course, you know, there's going to be cuts and savings. And I think the, the key question is, you know, how many journalists do you need in the United States or in Iran or wherever it is, and that will obviously create some that creates some uncertainty, and I think we'll sort of hear the the, the creed occur as that um, uh, you know as that process unwinds. But but look, 
BBC's got to manage on less. Uh, let's put the journalists in modern facilities. It's, it, you know, it is definitely unquestionably a good thing. That said, gentlemen, you both look quite prosperous. And if you'd rustled up 3.3 billion between you, you could have bought the UK media planning company Aegis, but you didn't. You messed up. Uh, Japan's Dentsu came up with 3.2 billion in a cash deal. And it looks like it's all theirs. Dan, why do we care? Another, it's, Aegis is one of Britain's little successful success stories. It's been quoted on the Stock Exchange for a long time. It's a media planner and buyer. What does it do? It buys the advertising in uh, on, on TV and newspapers for the likes of uh, General Motors is a big client, $3 billion account. Uh, and they've run their business very well for a long time. Uh, they grow at 10% a year, you know, at a time when newspapers and even broadcasters are struggling. That's a, Those are big numbers. Why? Because it's focused on digital, 37% is business digital, and because it's focused on growth markets like India and China. So what happens when we have a successful British company? It gets bought this time by the Japanese. So, look, uh, uh, you know, good luck to them. Is there uh, much competition? It's a very it's an increasingly consolidated business. There won't be another buyer because they've paid a lot of money. But uh, uh, we talk about the big seven in advertising. We've just gone down to the big six. So yeah, there's there's the you know the elephants in the room. You know, Sir Martin Sorrell, the big American uh, groups, publicists in Paris. But now we have the sort of Dentsu and Aegis coming together. Good news is Dentsu is big in Japan. Aegis is big in the rest of the world. Jobs aren't really there won't be many jobs going. So in one sense. Uh, London will sort of not come, will not be wounded by this. What's interesting about this is also part of a trend, and that is we are seeing now more and more Eastern countries buying up the West. China, Japan, India, you know, buying big chunks of Britain. And that's going to continue because, you know, that's where economic power is shifting, and this is just part of that trend. That's the future. So Paul's left, thanks to him. But Dan is still with me. This is media talk, of course. And much of the media talk this week has been about the trial of the former England captain John Terry. A field day, forgive the pun, for the headline writers, and a huge event for Twitter. But this is a trial, and there are legal pitfalls to tweeting trials. Some people, Dan, have been veering pretty close to the edge, haven't they? Yeah, and I've got to be careful because I don't think I can repeat it or get in trouble with our lawyers. But Rio Ferdinand has been uh, uh, enjoying himself, um, uh, tweeting out references to his favourite movie or movie of the day, which is um, uh, pretty easily and pretty clearly interpreted as a comment on on the trial. Uh, What's really interesting here is that Rio, he's got three million followers, right, on on Twitter. Mm. So... You know, he's bigger than a lot of publishers, dare one say it, even than the little old Guardian. And so what he says, you know, really does matter. And, you know, when it comes to courts, the normal rules are very simple. There's contempt of court round here. And normally we're very circumspect about what we say uh, before and while a trial's going on. Now, what saves Rio, straightforwardly, is this is before the magistrate's court. So mm. in one sense, this is a matter for a member of the judiciary, and they can be trusted, um, uh, so the contempt of court. So there's uh, no jury to influence. So no that's jury. the worry, isn't it, in contempt, that you, you end up influencing a jury one way or the other. Quite so, although, of course, there are other, potentially other witnesses who may indeed be influenced. So I don't think it's quite a, sort of the absence of a jury isn't quite uh, the be-all and end-all. But nevertheless, that doesn't half help uh, the footballer. You know, on the other hand, it sort of really goes to the heart of something quite fundamental, because uh, newspapers it may be a, it may be a trial for a magistrate's court, but newspapers are very respectful of that, because uh, mindful, if you like, of the way other courts operate, where there are jury trials. So you wouldn't have a newspaper writing an opinion piece, taking a strong view one way or another the day before or the day of a trial, saying course, that this yeah. evidence was credible or not, yeah. or what have you. We would simply contemporaneously report. That means sort of you know sit there and write down what happened on the field on the pitch, That's if you right, like. Yeah. 
And so I think what Rio is doing, I think to a degree unwittingly, is pushing at the contempt rules. And, and he's not alone. And the Attorney General's been engaged on this very same topic on this very same trial because uh, uh, when John Terry you know, pleaded not guilty, then Joey Barton, he took to Twitter to give uh, you know, his audience the benefit of his opinion. Well, fair enough, perhaps. Fair enough, it was uh, you know, two gentlemen down the pub or two women. But here he is again sort of broadcasting, if you like, to sort of you know, many thousands of people. So the Attorney General did have a look took the view that although it was sort of fairly robust, it was just about okay, but did warn that everybody that it was a sort of not a green flag to start sort of tweeting away anything you like while, while the trials are going. So are we, are we due a prosecution as an example to the others soon, do you think? It certainly could happen. It certainly could happen. I think we were running into trouble, though, because people are learning, I think, after the sort of, you know, Liam Stacey went to jail for those horrible marks about Fabrice Mwamba, that, that, you know, people are registering that things you say on, you know, Twitter is not some sort of, a, a lawless environment that, that you can say things that will indeed get you into trouble on on the other hand I, th- I think you also there's got to be a case where can we not move closer to a u.s style system where frankly you know you can sort of you know say much more you know be much more opinionated ahead of a trial report much more broadly discuss much more broadly in the public prints because they rely on their juries to put out of their minds anything yeah. they may have heard before they came into the courtroom and i do think that's an unrealistic proposition to put put before a jury when you know when you know when sworn in and say look let's look at the facts in front of you and maybe during the actual trial period one could be sort of a bit tighter but but i think you know that's i think the reality of the situation i think we need to be a little more realistic, I suspect. Cause so event- eventually someone will end up before the beak. Uh, well, yeah. So I think if you're, I think it's very tempting. Look, it's very tempting if it's just you and your BlackBerry and you just want to, you just want to tweet and it, you know you're a football and you happen to have two million followers. I don't suppose your first call is to your media lawyer to check whether you're straight up and down with contempt of court. So the message is, Twitter beware. Now, as I said, we've been kept busy by the John Terry trial, not least because one feature of it has been the bad language. Plenty of bleeps this week as the broadcast and print journalists struggle to convey what was said. Now at The Guardian, we have fewer restrictions on language, but we will tread carefully in the next few minutes for those of you not listening on headphones. Earlier I spoke to Chris Elliott, The Guardian's readers editor, about the nuances of swearing in the press. It's about whether you treat your uh, readers as adults or not. Now I think it's absolutely right and proper that certainly on the web we give a warning before any really difficult pictures or difficult words are there. And in the paper you've got to be really careful as to whether you use any of these kinds of words on the front. But it's important if you're treating your readers as adults to um, use the words that were said at the time. That's what the impact is. That's what the nastiness of a picture is. And uh, can we run them all? Is there a sliding scale? Are some words seen as being uh, worse than others? Well, I think the C word is still the word that everyone finds more difficult than any others. Outside of D.H. Lawrence. Outside of D.H. Lawrence. But that's a word which a lot of people still find offence. But the F word is a word which is in such common parlance that actually... While we normally keep those words outside, inside um, reported quotes, they does too often stray into the main part of the paper. And a lot of our readers really don't like it. There's one particular reader who sent me a letter and two paragraphs really sum up the way she feels and the way a lot of our readers feel. 
She says, recently we have had piss, shit and bleeding, with fucking becoming almost de rigueur. And yesterday there was even motherfucker. As it becomes more common, any desire by the writers for humour or emphasis disappears. Brackets, I'm presuming it's an attempt at humour or emphasis, if not for cleverness, though Polly Toynbee and Jackie Ashley don't seem to need it, close brackets. Well, she goes on to say, last paragraph, well, anyone can fucking well swear. I swear a lot, but I expect better standards in a quality paper. I'm afraid if your standards continue to slip, I'll have to give up newspapers altogether. It's very disheartening. Well, that's interesting because, you know, we are a quality news organisation. So what's going on then with The Sun and The Mail? How can it be that though you know, they have a different readership? The Sun is the paper of white van man and yet they won't swear. Yeah, I think it's a bit odd because it's a bit like um, the Victorians putting um, petticoats around their piano legs. Um, it's sort of pretending that this thing isn't there, even though you know that your readers, and let's be frank, many colleagues in the newsroom use these words every day. Uh, I, I do think that's a cop out. Um, but um, that, that's what they choose to do. Yeah, cool. We let you read that out because that was a quote from a reader yep. and it had uh, swear words in it. But is there an instruction to the writers? Yes, there is an instruction to the writers. First, remember the reader and respect demands that we should not casually use words that are likely to offend. Second, use such words only when absolutely necessary, for instance, to the facts of a piece or to portray a character in an article. And there's almost never a case in which we need to use a swear word outside direct quotes. And thirdly, the stronger the swear word, the harder we ought to think about using it. Okay, well, we'll read our newspapers with that in mind. Chris, effing brilliant that you can come on. (laughs) Thanks very much. (laughs) Breathless DVDs in hand, Vicky Frost has entered the studio and with her news of the return of The Thick of It. Hello, yes, this is this morning's news that uh, The Thick of It's coming back in September for another series, which is, of course, very exciting. And uh, we're told Malcolm Tucker will be back, which I think was the question everyone was wondering about. So uh, Peter Capaldi uh, fancies, fancies another run, does he? <laughs> yes. I mean, I think it'll be quite interesting in terms of Malcolm being out of power. I think, uh, obviously, there's there's lots of fertile ground, I would imagine, for a new series with the coalition government. Uh, but Rebecca Front is also coming back. So I think they're kind of going to be on the sidelines sort of looking in. And uh, actually, sort of Veep, uh, I don't know if you've been watching at all on Sky Atlantic, I feel like that's really sort of wet my appetite. That's the American uh, Ian Uchi. Yes. Uh, version of the yes. thick of it. Exactly. And there's sort of some thought about, you know, he's crafted that sort of vice presidential role so well yeah. there that maybe, you know, we never see the prime minister, of course, in the thick of it, but perhaps we could start seeing uh, the deputy prime minister. And I think um, Nick Clegg would be very sort of ripe for having, well, without swearing, sorry. <laughs> well, yes, would, um, ripe for satire. That's what I want to say. What, what, what will happen to Malcolm Tucker out of office? Will he be more sweary or will he have reflected and will he be less sweary? Well, uh, we saw it a little bit, didn't we, at the last, at sort of at the end of the last series. I mean, although that was almost three years ago, it was a long time ago we've waited, you know, been waiting quite a while, you know, and he's sort of, it's that terrible, terrible anger and crossness of somebody with no real outlook. For it. I got the impression that he swore less, but he was more menacing. Yes, I think that's and true. Way, maybe they were kind of more scared of him because he wasn't swearing. <laughs> yes, yes, I think, you know, when someone's being very explosive in front of you, it's sort of all very out there, isn't it? 
Yeah. <laughs> so um, the, the big thing for the BBC, they must be really pleased to be able to bring it back. Yes, I would. Yeah, I would think so. And um, and that comes back for BBC Two, which has been having just such. I, I do think it's been having a really good run of it recently. Um, and in fact, you know, the next program to talk about, I suppose, is the Secret History of Our Streets, which has been running on BBC Two for. It ended this week. It's had six weeks, and if I think it's been a really first-rate piece of documentary making. It's sort of a social history of London, really, uh, which is interesting in itself in that we don't see many programmes about London. Actually, although we see lots of programmes made in London reflecting London values, so it's specifically about London. And we've sort of visited streets throughout the capital in different areas, and we've sort of gone from seeing them in Victorian times and and sort of the poverty right. Charles Booth's yeah. um, poverty map, uh, maps of the Victorian times and then seeing the, how the street has developed since that and who lives there now. And uh, we've seen actually just heard the voices. What's been lovely is we've heard the voices of lots of ordinary Londoners uh, who have just been allowed to talk about their memories, uh, how the street was, what they think about community without too much prodding and, and quite a lot between themselves and there's not been a big showy presenter in there. And there hasn't actually been too much uh, narration either. It's It's been a mm. fascinating series and quite an interesting sort of way of making television at slightly arm's length. It's been, there's been, a, you've been left to think a lot for yourself and people have been left to talk a lot for themselves, which has sometimes been brilliant. And sometimes, of course, has just led to them being absolutely awful people but you know that <laughs> is the risk if that's yeah. what they're like i mean as you say it's, it's been a lovely series and i know they're all still there on iplayer and so if you want to catch up you can i saw the one about shoreditch mm. um and i just thought it was lovely the characters were, 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 were marvelous but also i looked at it and thought this has been so much work put into this they, that was one of the things i suppose dis- distinguished it they don't do that very often but it's the sort of documentary you feel you're getting your license fee worth for it but a lot of work went into it didn't it yes i think you're right i mean but that's really shone through it's been immaculately researched i think the research has gone into sort of persuading the people who are in the flat at the moment to say yes you can come in mm. and have a look around which in itself must be a huge thing but then to find the person who lived in that flat 80 years ago you know, and then perhaps, you know, somebody else whose grandparents lived the flat above. I can't even think about how long that's taken and how difficult that must have been to put together. But that's been the quality of it, I think, and it's really, really shone through and sort of shown really what Factual Telly should be doing. And it's it's been made in association with the Open University. Yeah. I think it's slightly notable that actually um, Harry Biker's Vacation, which might not seem the same thing, but actually was a pretty decent series and was very well watched on BBC Two earlier this year. That also had Open University input as well. So those partnerships seems to be sort of really bearing fruit. So we've, we've loved up the BBC. What about uh, some love for E4 um, and the US import Revenge? Oh, I love this. I love this. It's my total guilty pleasure. It's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous totally totally ridiculous e4 import about a very very wealthy people in the hamptons very wealthy beautiful young people wearing glamorous clothes and then sort of dropped into that so you've kind of got that gossip girl oc all Mm. that business and then dropped into that you've got this great kind of revenge plot and we're kind of five or six weeks in although to be honest i think you could probably pick it up at any point and get on with it i have missed whole week's episodes and managed to not really notice i have (laughs) is that a good thing well i mean you know (laughs) yes it's i mean it is a treat it's sort of you know a guilty treat and there's lots of fundraisers you know that's sort of very american (laughs) 
American thing where they have those kind of Hamptons fundraisers with you know big bowls of flowers and and everyone looks immaculate and is uh, very nice to each other's faces and horrible Absolutely, behind each other's yes. backs. So it's kind of very big on that, which I kind of adore to watch really. And actually, the storyline going through it about um, this you know socialite who is secretly bent on revenge for her father. I mean, it is great. It's quite gripping and it sort of allows that really sort of horrible angle. And I like that the heroine, Emily Thorne, or is she? She's just not particularly nice. I mean, really, if you met her, you really wouldn't like her at all. She just seems a bit snide and horrible. And I sort of think that's very much in its favour, that it's got a completely dislikable, uh, a central character to it. I suppose if you're going to make that sort of programme, you may as well just do it well. Yes, yes. It's extremely camp and it's very, very camp and very, very good fun. I would firmly recommend it. So that's Revenge, and of course the Olympics are coming up, and that's important, but more important, it means we get more 2012. I love 2012. I love 2012. I love everything this week. Normally I'm a bit grumpy. <laughs> yeah. It's fantastic. Have a go at something, will you? <laughs> well, um, well, no, I do love 2012, although I do wonder whether actually... Uh, it's, so it's come back for three episodes before the Olympics, which, you know, is marvellous. Yeah. But I, I did find, much as I love 2012, I did think this week's episode was not one of its best. And I can't tell whether it's because this close to the Olympics and with things like, you know, suddenly GS4 don't have enough people. Yeah, and, we need you know. three. Does anyone know, <laughs> anyone know where we can get three and a half thousand soldiers? Anyone? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The more you hear about things like that. It sort of, I think it forces perhaps the programme to be more ridiculous than it really needs to be. I felt yeah, it was yeah. slightly overstated and kind of the middle, there was a mid, the middle block of programmes I thought almost captured it best, the ridiculousness of Locog. Um, but I, I obviously love that Siobhan Shop is back and um, she's the most marvellous, marvellous creation. And I, I, love, do hope, I love her. I, I do. I want to I be taken her. out for lunch with her desperately. But I, I, Oh, well, I'll pick her up later. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of hope she lives on beyond the Olympics because I'd be a bit sad if she never came to television <laughs> ever again. She should have the torch. I think she should have. Just, she should have been the one with the torch for half the country. It'd be marvellous, and she would never have smiled once. Yeah. She and Karl Marx. What do they do with that afterwards? I mean, because it's a, in a way, it's a shame post Olympics to lose those characters. I mean, it's just such a funny setup. They, they've got to set them into something else. Well, you'd hope so, but then kind of, I suppose the point is that it finishes and, you know, and, and so on. But yeah, I do think Siobhan Sharp could come back in many guises in lots of things. She, I mean, Jessica Hines, who I adore, you know, you know, she sort of had spaced and then she had lots of not so great things and she has occasional flashes of brilliance. And it's been quite nice to see her be good in something for a while. Vicky, I'm going to stop you there because you love everything. And before you find something to hate, I'm going to say thank you very much. And also because we're out of time. So that's it for this week's Media Talk. My thanks to Dan Sabah, Paul Robinson, Chris Elliott and Vicky Frost. I'm Hugh Muir. The producer was Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Guardian Podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details.